the American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 10, Mexico Becomes Independent. Welcome to the American History Podcast, hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, hello again, friends and listeners. After a bit of a hiatus, we are back. Unfortunately, it was a bit of an unplanned hiatus, but that couldn't be helped. So let me explain what has gone on. Um, Really, it was a series of unfortunate accidents that kept me from podcasting, but we should be back on track shortly. First was the decision to change my website hosting over to Weebly or from Weebly to Bluehost. That was a decision I'd made a while back, um, and I made the switch on March 31st. As you probably um, know, unfortunately, switching the hosting wasn't as easy as it sounded, and the website was up and down for most of April. Now, once that problem was solved, a second problem arose, which is the end of the semester for grad school. Um, I didn't have time to read for the podcast as well as the classes that I'm taking, and so that delayed this episode further. And then May the 4th arrived, and the 4th wasn't with me, um, to say the least. Um, I decided to play in the student versus faculty basketball game at our school, and that didn't go so well. Okay, the teachers won, but I left the game early after I lost my balance and ended up fracturing my right elbow. Yes, I know, I'm no spring chicken, and playing basketball is the last thing that I should be doing at my age, which is still fairly young, I assure you. Um, But be that as it may, the, the elbow is now on the way to recovery, and our episode is done. So here we are. I figure this episode will be um, one in a two-part series on Mexico, although as the second episode is not yet written, who knows? Uh, I'm, I wanted to make sure that we discussed Mexico as early as possible, as she is quite important to the story. I should also say that for the next few weeks, um, episodes will be sporadic as I try to get back on schedule. But for now, I figure once every other week um, is probably uh, the schedule we're looking at. And hopefully we'll be back on track by our anniversary in July to start releasing episodes once every week, or at least that is the goal. Now, speaking of the anniversary, I have a special episode planned for for that um, event. I will be doing a joint podcast episode with Chris Fernandez-Peckham of the Age of Victoria podcast. If you haven't checked out uh, his show yet, please do so. He is doing a fantastic job and He's just finished up uh, a series on Waterloo and is finally getting into the meat of the show, which is the age of Victoria. Um, But anyway, I hope we can get that recorded here and real soon and ready to go in time for the anniversary in July. But without further ado, let's talk about Mexico. It is July 1821. Mexico is embroiled in a war for independence from Spain. The insurgency against Spanish rule has actually um, had actually begun back in 1810. Now, this isn't the first rebellion that had broken out in, in the Spanish colony. In fact, there had been several over the centuries. By the early 19th century, the French occupation of France had caused numerous revolts against colonial Spanish governments throughout the empire. Now, while the rebellion has had some success, it is now in its 11th year, 
and finally gaining traction. Lieutenant General Don Juan de O'Donoghue had landed or has landed in Veracruz on July 30th with the mandate to implement the Spanish Constitution of 1812. Now, this was a liberal constitution, and thus it did not sit well with the conservative elements um, which ran the colony. In fact, the general would be the last viceroy of New Spain. The real power in the colony was not with the Peninsulares, that's a group of native Spanish military officers, as their numbers were always quite small. The power was truly in the hands of the Criollo soldiers, priests, and landowners who dominated Mexican politics and culture. These people were the ones whom the, the new constitution upset, as it threatened to deprive them of their privileges, and so they rebelled. Now, the city of Veracruz was under siege at that point by a rebel army that was led by an opportunistic young officer. At one point, he had been a captain in the Royal Ar Colonial Army, and after a victory in a small battle, he won a promotion to lieutenant colonel. However, he offered to change sides if the rebels would make him a full colonel, an offer which they accepted. By the time it was all said and done, he would be a brigadier general and right-hand man to the new leader of independent New Spain, Agustin de Iturbide. Now, at this point, the besieging officer arranged a meeting between Iturbide and O'Donoghue, and on August the 24th, 1821, the Treaty of Cordoba was signed, granting independence to New Spain. So who was this dashing young officer that some said was born to wear the uniform? That uniform was blue and red with gold trim, lace, and a high Napoleonic collar, and it seemed to make him even taller than his already tall 5'10 frame. Now, historian David Clary notes that this young man, quote, had a rich voice and a commanding manner for one so young, but he was friendly, polite, and deferential when he should be, end quote. He was also extremely likable and, at the end of the day, completely untrustworthy. He was, according to O'Donoghue, someone who would, quote, make his country weep, end quote. His name? Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Now, Santa Ana's new country claimed as much as half of North America in, late, in the late 18th century, from modern Panama in the south to the far northwest where the British and the Russians claimed Oregon, British Columbia, and Alaska. The um, claim extended to the Rocky Mountains, up the Great Plains along the Mississippi River, to British Canada, not to mention Florida along the Gulf Coast. Now, the reality, of course, is that these claims were mostly fantasy. Over half of New Spain was actually controlled by what they referred to as Indios Bárbaros, the Native Americans. There was a border to the Northern Territory. If there was a border to the Northern Territory, one could argue that border was the Rio Grande, and the border then stretched west to California. Now, certainly there were settlements north of the Rio Grande, especially in modern New Mexico around Santa Fe, and there were some settlements in California and around San Antonio as well. However, again, as historian uh, David Clary points out, scattered small outposts in Texas, New Mexico, and California did not represent actual possession. The true power was in the hands of native peoples, especially the Comanche. Now, in the waning years of New Spain, uh, the late 18th century, Spanish officials were increasingly worried about the northern frontier. They believed, quite correctly, that the greatest threat to their empire came from the United States. The Spanish monarch had been an ally of France during the War for Independence, 
they were always nervous about um, having a land-hungry Anglo-American rival on the other side of the Mississippi River. As a matter of fact, um, Spain dragged its feet in recognizing American independence and closed the Mississippi River to American traffic until 1795, a full 12 years after England itself recognized American independence. Now, furthermore, and to make matters worse, came what the Spanish referred to as the Great Betrayal. Napoleon pressed Spain to return the Louisiana Territory to France in 1800. And then, three years later, Napoleon turned around and sold it to the United States. Needless to say, the Spanish were outraged. What had been a buffer zone between the Americans and the Spanish Empire was now removed, and the colonial governors believed their territories were now under threat. As a reaction to this threat, the Spanish colonial government established new forts, presidios, um, frontier military posts in Texas and New Mexico, but they never had the manpower required to repel an invasion. And when it comes to the Louisiana Purchase, there were Americans who objected to that. Heck, even Thomas Jefferson himself was unsure as to whether or not the purchase was even constitutional. To assess what exactly the United States had just bought, Jefferson dispatched an expedition, a tiny one led by Lewis and Clark, to explore and map the newly acquired territory and establish an American presence in the region before other European powers, namely the British, tried uh, to lay claim to it. In keeping with the spirit of the day, Jefferson also tasked this expedition with scientific objectives. Now, if you aren't aware, science and empire were and are still linked together. Um, but these tasks included studying the area's plant life, um, animal life, and geography. Now, Jefferson noted the Spanish ambassador of the expedition, or notified the, the Spanish ambassador of the expedition, and rather than decrease Spanish fears, this actually had the opposite effect. Thus, the authorities in Mexico City ordered the governor of New Spain, of New Mexico, I should say, Santa Fe, to send out troops and capture the expedition and its leaders, something which they actually failed to do. The Americans continued to fuel Spanish fears when, in 1806, Major Zebulon Pike was dispatched from Louisiana by Brigadier General James Wilkinson to conduct further explorations of the territory. Now remember, scientific explorations were seen as being part and parcel of empire and were often conducted by military men. If you've seen the film uh, Master and Commander, um, or maybe you've read some of the excellent books by Patrick O'Brien, upon which that film was based, then you remember that the doctor was interested in botany. Geography, botany, map making, all of these things were tied into empire. Anyway, Pike's mission was not sanctioned by the U.S. government, but he was told to make peace with the Indians of the Great Plains and discover the headwaters of the Rio Grande. That latter part would have struck fear into the heart of Spanish officials as it essentially represented an invasion of their territory. Never fear, the Spanish didn't sit by and allow this to simply happen. Of course, as always, word of Pike's expedition leaked, even before he had left Louisiana. So by the time he was on the plains negotiating with the Pawnee, he learned that a Spanish column had been in the region searching for him and his expedition. Actually, there were several Spanish units searching the region for his location, which they eventually found in early 1807 when they discovered 
Pike and his men nearly starving in southern Colorado. Um, the Americans were then taken back to Chihuahua, where they were jailed before being released a few months later. But all of this added to Spanish fears about the encroaching Americans, and will be important down the road. The Spanish, and later the Mexicans, would have plenty to worry about, as the United States, um, which was an aggressively expanding um, land-hungry nation, started to eye what they considered to be their territory. So let's look at Mexican society. Although some, such as the Bishop of Valladolid, described Mexico as being composed of three classes, it was a far more complex society than that. Um, remember, when the Spanish conquered the area in the early 1500s, they brought no Spanish women with them. Now, eventually, Spanish women did make the journey to America along with more men, whether they were convicts, laborers, soldiers, or governors. Um, slaves were also imported from Africa for several decades. Um, so saying there are three classes is, is simply oversimplifying things, <laughs> to put it one way. Okay, And we should remember that the Spanish men who first came to the area when there were no women were going to then um, – for lack of a better word, hook up with Native American women and have offspring. Okay, so let's look at all this in a little more detail. There were two groups of whites, Peninsulares and Criollos. Um, the former were whites who were born in Europe. The latter were whites born in the New World. The children of a white and an Indian were mestizo, those who were white or children of, of a white and African union, were mulattoes. The various crosses between pure and mixed racial heritage produced a dizzying array of possibilities, and we're not going to go into those here. Um, now, you can add to the mix people who were already there, and you see how complicated it, it became. As for Indians, um, you had the Indios, the Indians, who could speak some Spanish and were nominally Christian. You had the, inde, in, the indi, indigenas, um, indigenas, sorry, mostly farmers in isolated regions who spoke little or no Spanish and lived on communal lands. And then, of course, you had the indios barbaros, the wild Indians of the frontier. And then finally, you had everyone else, or the castas. So the social hierarchy was one of skin tone, um, the lighter being lumped into mestizo, the darker often lumped into the castas, and the castas obviously are the bottom of the, the ladder, so to speak. Um, the levels of wealth and education paralleled skin color, and the resulting inequalities were a prescription for disaster. Okay, um, Just as an FYI, the final Spanish census that was conducted in 1810 noted indígenas made up 60% of the population, mestizos 22%, and whites 18%. So note the census leaves off Indians, and again, just an FYI, they did not count people in areas where um, the three major groups were relatively scarce. They didn't go out into the countryside um, very far. Society was ruled by the army and the church. Now, each institution enjoyed something called uh, the fueros, or special privileges or special rights. Um, officers or churchmen were subject to trial not in a civilian court but in a military court or a church court where your conviction was highly unlikely. So the fuero was, in essence, a license to steal or kill. 
This would cause political and social divisions which plagued Mexico for decades in which liberals favored democratic equality and conservatives who wanted no, uh, wanted no change to the social order. I don't think it's stretching things too far to say that both Spain and her colonies missed out on the Enlightenment. Okay, um, Government was corrupt and society character- was characterized by a group of entrenched powers uh, that were resistant to any mention of reform or modernization. Thus again, as historian David Clary notes, Mexico was born almost as a medieval society, one that was lacking a class of people who could lead it into the modern world. Uh, it had almost no middle class and no experience with democratic rule. You could compare this to the American colonies and see there was a huge difference. The 13 North American colonies of the British Empire had extensive experience with self-government in the decades before independence and were well-versed in Enlightenment philosophy. Now, some would argue the church was the most reactionary and repressive institution in Mexican society, controlling approximately half of the wealth of the nation in the form of land and treasure. The higher-ups of the church lived lives of extreme luxury, working the indios to death on estates, and many of them fathering bastard children. Tending to the actual parish flock was the duty of the darker mestizo priests, uh, while Indians themselves were almost never admitted to the priesthood. Of course, others argue um, that the colonial army was worse, and they could be right. Now, the colonial army, um, its generals were all peninsulares, while the lesser officers were criollo. The army numbered approximately 33,000 men on the eve um, of independence, um, most of which was actually just a number on paper. Okay, um, The officials stole money that was appropriated for ghost soldiers, so the number was likely far smaller. Um, having said that, about half the army was made up of officers, thanks to the fact that the king and the viceroys all found a rewarding source of income um, through the selling of officer commissions. Now, remember, if one had a commission as an officer, you also had the protection of the military fuero. So this army is problematic, to say the least. Now, New Spain did have educated people, so it's not that they had no one who could conceive of a more effective um, way to govern a nation. Um, in fact, there was a growing criollo intelligentsia in the late 18th century, um, but there was little original thinking. A few thinkers borrowed ideas from the French, the North American, and English um, Enlightenment movements, um, but they did not build on them or implement these ideas. Um, they were fascinated by the idea of popular sovereignty, but they identified the people as themselves, those at the top of the system. And as of this point, the idea of a Mexican did not exist. So what was the problem? <laughs> well, some historians uh, argue that it was the distribution of wealth or the lack thereof. Um, in their textbook, The Course of Mexican History, Mexican historians Michael C. Meyer, um, William L. Sherman, and Susan M. Deeds all argue that a large number of the wealthiest people were peninsulares who had made good in America, um, but there was also a large number of criollos who were pro prosperous. They mention um, the unequal distribution of wealth. Um, 
But as many of my fellow historians tend to do, they never mention what is the optimum, optimum distribution of wealth. There was certainly a large number of wealthy people, um, but the number of poor was um, – and the number of poor was certainly way larger. But my question is to what, con- what country are they comparing Mexico to? Um, is it any worse off than let's say the Habsburg Empire, the German states? How about the United States? Um, remember during the pre-industrial age, large numbers of people lived at or below the poverty line. Um, so poverty wasn't something new to New Spain. Um, and so I'm just wondering what are they comparing this to? If you're going to say that this was the cause, I, I need to see more than just a simple statement. Well, it's the distribution of wealth. However, by the start of the 19th century, be that as it may, things were changing. Okay, um, Revolutions and secessionist movements throughout the Atlantic world in the United States, France, and Haiti had brought a new order to those countries as they challenged imperial powers. Informed members of the upper class in New Spain certainly couldn't help but notice that in both revolts in the New World, smaller colonial populations than that in New Spain were successful in defeating imperial powers that were greater than Spain. Surely they would also have been aware um, their own society was far more diverse than either Haiti or the United States, and they were probably worried what the future held. As the Napoleonic Wars raged across Europe, revolution in Mexico began. As I mentioned earlier, uh, resistance to Spanish rule did take place during the colonial period. Uh, Before 1810, there were a number of rebellions and conspiracies that challenged Spanish authority. Um, Some of these disturbances were simple uprisings based on local issues, and they garnered very little support outside of the area. On the other hand, some of the Indian rebellions had a large following with violent and bloody consequences. Um, The capture of the King of Spain by the French thus is what's going to move New Spain towards independence here in the early 1800s. In 1809, governmental instability along with a drought and poor corn harvest, which meant prices for increasing for food and the consequences of which were far-reaching. At this point, the leading criollos in Mexico City, they continued to hold the conservative line, worried as they were about the possibility of mob rule and the painful ending of their association with Spain. The mood, however, in the provinces was different, even amongst the criollos. In the rural areas, these people had a more developed sense of um, patria chica, where they wanted to run their own affairs, similar uh, in many ways to the English North American colonists of the early 1760s. And so by 1810, um, as cities in southern Spain itself um, fell to French forces and Spanish sovereignty was compromised, finally authorities in Mexico City uh, become aware of a conspiracy that had formed in Querétaro, uh, one of the leaders of which included an aging priest named Hidalgo. Now, we're not going to go into all of the details here, but suffice it to say that that the Hidalgo Rebellion was not immediately successful. On the morning of September 16th, Father Hidalgo rang the church bells in the small town of Dolores, calling the people to mass earlier than normal. Um, He gave one of the most famous speeches in Mexican history. Um, A motley band of poorly armed Indians and mestizos Um, joined up, and they struck out for San Miguel, 
led by Hidalgo. Eventually, the priest and some of his men were captured by forces loyal to the crown, and they were executed in Chihuahua on July or in July of 1811. Um, by 1815, King Ferdinand VII of Spain was restored, and the 1812 Constitution abolished. So, in the fall of that year, the last of Hidalgo's fellow conspirators, um, Jose Maria Morelos, was captured, escorted to Mexico City, and executed for treason by a firing squad. Now, for the next five years, the movement towards independence was relegated to sporadic guerrilla fighting. Order seemed to be restored for the most part. Um, guerrilla bands, lacking in supplies and vision, of what an independent Mexico would look like were confined to isolated mountain pockets and heavily foliaged portions of the coastal regions. Um, for its part, the Spanish army was unable to fight an effective campaign against the rebels. And so in essence, the sides were at a stalemate, neither able to defeat the other, although the rebels were able to slowly begin uh, to take hold of the countryside. Okay, By 1819, the situation was disintegrating for the Loyalists. As troops who were demoralized by an increasingly difficult task began to defect. Even so, the Spanish viceroy in Mexico City, Juan Ruiz de Apodaca, reported the situation was under control and further reinforcements were unneeded. This brings us to Agustin de Iturbide. Born to a wealthy and influential um, set of parents in Valladolid, Valladolid, which is now uh, called Morelia. Um, his father was of aristocratic Spanish lineage, but his mother's lineage I've seen um, some people have questioned. Now, he insisted his entire life that she was a criollo of pure Sp Spanish blood, um, but one wonders if she might have been mestizo. I mean, why did he continually have to assert that her, blood her bloodlines were pure? Obviously, someone was questioning this. Now, either way, it doesn't matter because his parents were wealthy and um, they were both conservative. Agustin himself was a distinguished student and he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the provincial um, regiment in his teens. In 1805, at the age of 22, he ended up marrying Ana Maria Josefa Ramona de Huarte y Muniz from a Spanish noble family. Um, needless to say, he married quite well. She came with a dowry of 100,000 pesos, which the couple used to purchase a hacienda in the small town of Maravatio. Now, popular with the royalists and a foe of the rebels, Augustin was able to acquire a reputation for winning victory against the odds, and he was often uh, referred to as the Iron Dragon, a reference to his skill and his position in the army. Um, at a time when defections had become commonplace, the common or the defection, I should say, of Iturbide was the most damaging to the Spanish cause. Um, in the fall of 1820, Viceroy Apodaca invited then Colonel Iturbide to discuss plans for a new campaign against the rebel leader Vicente Guerrero. Given control of 2,500 men, Iturbide led them south in late November, and after several skirmishes, all of which were indecisive, he petitioned Guerrero for a meeting during which he proposed peace. The price would be peace on his terms. However, Guerrero was not convinced that Iturbide was sincere, 
or that his ideas for an independent Mexico were even workable. So several conferences were held, and then finally on February 24th, 1821, they issued the Plan de Iguala. Now essentially, the plan praised Spain for being the most Catholic, holy, and heroic nation on earth, but stated that after 300 years of Spanish tutelage, it was now time for the child to strike out on its own, so to speak. In in an attempt to gain support from disparate groups, it actually contained three major guarantees. Number one, the independent Mexican nation would be organized as a constitutional monarchy, and the crown would be offered to King Ferdinand or some other appropriate European prince. Um, Mexico was now independent from Madrid. The second thing was that the Roman Catholic religion would be given a monopoly on the spiritual life of the country, and its priests would keep all privileges and rights they had at that point in time. And then number three, the Criollos and the Peninsulares would be treated equally in the new state, but caste distinctions were to be abolished. Within weeks, converts arrived. Uh, Military men throughout the country joined the Army of Three Guarantees, as it was called, while priests urged cooperation from their pulpits. Most importantly, however, the community of Spaniards, approximately 50,000 strong, found the plan acceptable and pledged their support. And so the writing was on the wall. The meeting between Iturbide and Juan de Donahue, um, first mentioned at the start of the episode, ended up leading to the Treaty of Cordoba. Almost a mirror image of the Plan de Iguala, this document guaranteed an independent monarchy for New Spain under the power of the Bourbon dynasty. It called for Ferdinand VII to rule as emperor, but if Ferdinand refused, they would invite his brother. If that didn't work, then the the plan was to search for a suitable monarch from the various European royal houses. In the meantime, a regency would take over from the viceroy. All existing laws would remain in effect until a new constitution could be drafted. An important point added um, at the suggestion of O'Donohue was that in the event of Spanish refusal to appoint a regent for the empire, um, the Mexican Congress would then be free to elect whomever it felt was worthy of the office of emperor. So what happened? Well, Spain um, reneged on the deal. The king of Spain gained the upper hand over the liberals in the country and developed plans to reconquer the lost empire. None of the European noble families wanted anything to do with this new independent Mexican empire for fear of angering their Spanish friends. And there was no family inside of Mexico who would or who could garner enough support to be seen as royal. Iturbide and the military council that he led then convened a congress to try and set up a new government. Now, believe it or not, the congress was kept by Iturbide and his associates, um, but there were tensions between the two sides. Congress did not want all power left in the hands of one person, but it declared sovereignty lay with it, not with the people. That's a bad idea. Remember, at the end of the day, this is one of a number of Atlantic world revolutions, many if not all of which declared sovereignty was with the people. So in my opinion, this is probably their first mistake, or maybe we could call it strike one if you're a baseball fan. Um, Their second was to threaten to reduce the size of the army and its pay. That threatened the power of Iturbide and one of the two powerful institutions in Mexican society, the army. Strike number two. 
Now, in the end, Iturbide, through popular will or through his own machinations, depending on who you read, was crowned emperor. Now, the record isn't quite clear on this. Um, some historians argue that he took the crown in a coup, while others argue the people truly wanted him to lead the nation. Um, it should also be kept in mind that Iturbide himself rejected at least two attempts to proclaim him uh, emperor. One was in September of 1821 and another, another in October of 1821. Uh, but by July of 1822, it's for sure that his mind had changed, um, and now he was crowned emperor of the Mexican Empire. Important to our story, of course, is the United States. Present at this time, uh, president, I should say, at this time, James Monroe dispatched Joel Poinsett as special envoy to Mexico upon receiving word that Iturbide was crowned emperor. Now, the United States was concerned about the stability and the potential of the regime, which the envoy declared was not likely to last long. It was obvious there were cracks in the foundation of the empire at the outset. It is also interesting and relevant to our story to note that the United States at this early juncture inquired into the possibility of acquiring Mexico's northern territories, an idea which the new Mexican government rejected out of hand. Now that the empire of Mexico had an emperor, all was good, right? Well, you'll have to wait until the next episode to find out. Iturbide has his work cut out for him, though. There were already elements conspiring against his regime. The conservatives were not happy um, at all with the choice of a Mexican emperor, as they had only joined in the revolution because of the idea that a European noble, preferably the Spanish king himself, would be crowned. The Americans, well, they're already eyeing the territory um, along the northern frontier. So the government is, as most revolutionary governments and um, newly independent governments are, um, not wealthy and in a bit of a precarious situation. Furthermore, after a decade of war and violence, Mexico was left with a double legacy, one which would plague the country in the coming decades. First, it had a group of both heroes and traitors, a dangerous legacy indeed. Uh, related to the first was the legacy of political violence and economic devastation. For the sake of comparison, in 1781, the newly independent 13 colonies of North America did face devastation from war, but they had a history of political independence and not one of political violence. Further, they would, for the most part, be left alone for the next three decades, given, in essence, time to recover and grow. Mexico would receive no such reprieve. Secondly, the military, specifically the army, had a direct hand in achieving independence. They were not about to step aside and let civilians take control of Mexico's future. Thus, for the next century, the military would be part and parcel of the political process, bargaining with various um, factions to control a greater share of the country's wealth. The military was essentially a tool for deceitful politicians to use to achieve their own political ends. This is where we will pick up the story next time. As always, I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If so, please, please, please do me a favor and give us a review on iTunes or just a, a rating um, if you don't have the time to write a full-on review. This really does help those who are interested in American history to find us when they're searching. Also, tell your friends and family members. Um, the more people listening, the better. 
If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send them to me. Uh, my email address is Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also find me on Twitter, at AmericanHisCast. Um, and I, I will respond as soon as I can. So please, if, you're, if you do have a question or comment, please feel free to contact me, and I will respond as soon as I get it. Okay, until next time, good day.